right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington. And today I'm joined by James So. James is an assistant professor in biomedical data science and by courtesy of computer science and electrical engineering at Stanford University. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm super excited for our conversation. I'm looking forward to digging in with you on ChatGPT and how its behavior has changed. This is one of your recent research projects, as well as some work you've been doing around vision language modeling for medical applications. But before we dive into those topics, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning and AI. Great, yeah. So I've been working in machine learning and AI for the way about past 15 years. I did my PhD at Harvard, which is starting to do some machine learning. That was right around the time when deep learning was becoming more powerful, more popular. And then I came to Stanford about seven years ago to start my group. And here at Stanford, we really focus on developing machine learning AI tools. And oftentimes we develop tools for biomedical and healthcare applications. Awesome. And give us some examples of some of the tools that you've worked on. Yeah. So for example, we developed systems that can look at videos of people's beating heart, right? And can use that to assess whether someone's at risk for heart failure or for stroke or heart diseases, right? So that's an algorithm that we published a couple of years ago. We actually did a big clinical trial testing how good that algorithm is, right? In, when it's deployed in clinical settings, it's in the process of you know, getting submitted and getting FDA approvals. We also developed algorithms that can help people to design clinical trials right, uh, or to discover new drugs. All right. Interesting. So one of the interesting things that you stumbled upon as you were working on your one of your research projects was this change in the way ChatGPT behaves. Give us a little bit about the background of that effort, what you were seeing and, and what led to that research. Yeah. So, so you know, we were very much motivated by the fact that first, ChatGPT is becoming hugely popular. So a lot of people are using it for all sorts of applications, right? From helping them to write emails, to writing code, or to write, do homework even. And <laughs> there's also a lot of people who are reporting, uh, like, you know, on social media, online that, oh, they're seeing all sorts of changes in ChatGPT's behavior over time, like over the last few months. And we see some of that too in our studies, in our applications. For the actual study itself, for this paper, which we put online in July this year, we wanted to do this assessment systematically. And for that, we ended up picking eight different types of tasks to cover, I think, a quite diverse set of applications of people, how people are using ChatGPT. So some of these tasks involve solving, uh, doing coding. Others involve like answering knowledge-based questions or knowledge retrieval questions. Others would involve answering opinion questions or solving like math puzzles. Right. So there's a bunch of these different tasks. And for each task, we would have sometimes uh, you know, a few hundred or sometimes over a thousand different questions for that task. And then for okay. each of the questions, then we'll ask it to both the March version of ChatGPT and then the June version, and then mm -hmm. systematically compare the results to see how is there a shift and what is the shift. And one of the challenges that users of language models like ChatGPT are having today is the difficulty of creating concrete baselines and systematic comparisons when your output is text, right? If you're baselining predictions, classifications, those are easier yeah. to evaluate. 
but text gets a little bit trickier. How did you go about creating an evaluation methodology for the text results? I'm imagining is, you know, it had some substantial differences, but was, you know, similar if you were just to read it kind of cursorily. Yeah, so that's a really good question. And that is one of the big open challenges in how do we evaluate output of these generative AI systems like ChatGPT, right, where the output is very complex and very rich. So the mm -hmm. way that we tackle this problem in our paper sets for some of the tasks, right? So, you know, we have eight tasks. So some of the tasks, the outputs are actually sort of simpler yes or no, or maybe just a specific number. Right. Okay. So it's just, like, to give you an example of this, like one of the questions we had was around whether we will give ChatGPT like a number, like a five-digit number, and we'll say, okay, is this a prime number or not? Okay. So we know the ground truth, right? And ChatGPT maybe will, will do some sort of reasoning, but in the end, it would tell us, okay, so this number is a prime number or it's not a prime number, right? And then we'll just look at that final answer it provides and say, okay, is this actually correct or incorrect? Mm -hmm. And were there other question types where you took on this challenge of trying to assess the relative performance of textual output? Yeah, so for other tasks like coding, right? So the output of the coding is not just binary yes or no, but it's actually a piece of code. So mm -hmm. in that case, then we would actually just copy and paste over the code produced by ChatGPT and then you know, and then run that code and see, is it executable, right? Does it parse, right? And if it's executable, then does it actually produce the right answer? So for coding outputs, then we can actually just try to evaluate the code. And the third kind of metric that we use to evaluate is just be in terms of the verbosity, which is a simple metric, but it just looks at like how actually how verbose is the output of ChatGPT, right? Does it actually okay. give you an expanded response? And we actually see a huge difference. Sometimes the verbosity of the response has changed a lot over the last few months. Got it. So I don't know if this is exactly right to characterize the things that you were looking to compare as quantitative relative to qualitative, but you know, if those are more of a spectrum and qualitative, like very qualitative analysis of blocks of produced text is at one end, you you didn't really go that far. It was more, you know, looking at things that you can get more concrete comparisons around numerical outputs code blocks that you can run, things like that. That's correct. Yes, we wanted to focus on a bit more quantitative outputs, metrics, for the mm -hmm. reasons that we want to do this at a large scale, right? to do this across like thousands, and sometimes like many, many thousands of questions. Yeah. And the second is that the quantitative outputs are a bit more objective right, to measure. So that's why we, for this initial assessment, we focus on these eight different tasks where we have more quantitative metrics. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so given that we're talking about two different versions of ChatGPT, it's not really surprising that there would be some behavior change. And I think the hope would be that the later version is kind of unilaterally better than the, the former version. Tell us about what you actually found comparing these two versions. Yeah. So this is where it's actually quite surprising to us. We were quite surprised to find that for some of the tasks, the later version in June did do better than the version in March. But mm -hmm. there were actually quite a lot of tasks where the later version was actually substantially worse compared to the mm -hmm. earlier version. So these are even some seemingly simpler, relatively simple tasks, like example I mentioned about, you give it a number and you say, is it a prime number or not? So we'll give the same numbers to ChatGPT in March and June, right? In March, you would actually get most of these numbers correctly, right? So most of the time, we'll be able to tell whether it's the prime number and this is the, not a prime number accurately. 
But in June, if you give the same numbers, actually its performance has dropped quite off quite a bit, right? Often by I think 30 or 40 points percent. Oh wow. And I think there's actually a, a really interesting reason for this in that um, if you think about, I guess, how, how do I figure out if a, if a number is a prime or not, right? So if you ask ChatGPT to do this chain of thought reasoning, it would have a very reasonable chain of thought of, okay, so here's a number, I'm going to find all the smaller numbers and try to divide each of the small numbers into my original query number, right? If it divides into it, then it's not a prime by definition. Mm -hmm. So that's a very reasonable way of solving that problem. That's how also how humans would solve it. So when we asked ChatGPT to do this chain of thought reasoning in March, that was actually very effective. It will find the right strategy for solving this problem and it gets a very good accuracy. But mm -hmm. in June, when we asked it to use chain of thought reasoning, then it seems like chain of thought no longer works very well for this task in June, right? So it would either not be willing to use chain of thought reasoning for specific numbers, or it would just attempt to do chain of thought reasoning, but not be able to execute the different steps correctly. And why do you think that is? I mean, chain of thought has become a very popular way to get ChatGPT to do more complex tasks. You would hope that over time it gets better at doing chain of thought. So that's where it becomes really interesting and also quite mysterious, right? So I agree with you that this, <laughs> it's one of the most common strategies to improve the performance of these models, on, especially on logical tasks to ask you to do chain of thoughts. It's a very common popular prompt strategy. But what we found is that actually the, this popular prompt strategy actually does not work as well in June compared to before. Did you compare performance for other tasks using chain of thought beyond the primes or was the prime kind of your proxy for the way it did chain of thought? Yeah. So we also give it other puzzles. So other math problems, instead of looking for primes, you can look for like other kinds of numbers with other mathematical properties. And we saw a very similar pattern of that was ChatGPT. Right? So obviously GPT-4, the performance was much better in March compared to June for these other math problems as well. And similarly, the effectiveness of chain of thought reasoning was actually much higher in March compared to in June. So it got much worse in chain of thoughts for these other math problems in June as well. And was the behavior consistent between ChatGPT 3.5 and 4? When you saw a change, was it the same direction for both models or did it even vary from model to model, whether it got better or worse on a given question type? Yeah, so that's actually where it becomes even more interesting and mysterious is that it's often <laughs> the trend of behavior change is divergent for different, you know, for GPT 3.5 versus for GPT 4. Mm -hmm. right? So everything I was describing was for the latest version of GPT, so GPT 4. So that's where we see the performance and chain of thought got worse in June compared to March. We also asked GPT 3.5 the exact same math problems and the actually GPT 3.5 did better in June compared to March. So there, there was actually doing better. And then chain of thought reasoning also was also working better, uh, was also working well for GPT 3.5, right? So this actually highlights this additional complexity is that if you look at the same model at GPT 4, right, it's quote unquote the same model, but its behavior can change over time. But if you look at its sibling, right, GPT 3.5, that change of behavior of 3.5 can be very different from the change of behavior for the version 4, right? even though these are from the same family. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you kind of alluded to the mystery of it all and, and this underlying lack of transparency that we have because it's a proprietary model. But that said, and we can return to that, did you develop any intuition about like what might be happening and what 
might be causing performance decreases for these models? Yeah, so one conjecture that we have, based on some of the other experiments that we've done, this idea of what I like to call sort of uh, this neuropleiotropy, right? So pleiotropy is the idea that if I change the behavior for one type of task for a system, right, it could be AI or for human, mm. that can have unintended side effects that can mm -hmm. change its behavior for other tasks, even though those might seem to be orthogonal to what I'm doing, right? So we've done some experiments where we would take these large language models and then do additional instruction fine tuning to improve the safety of these models, right? By yeah. safety here, I mean make it less, make the models less likely to respond to questions like, uh, how do I steal someone's credit card, right? Or how do I hurt some people, right? Mm -hmm. And when we do the instruction fine tuning by giving it these safety demonstrations, so that, that improves the safety of these language models, that's great. But we also see some really unexpected side effects right, of that model in that, for example, maybe some of these models now would, um, if you ask it, okay, how do I kill weed, right? So the model will stop, will say, oh, you shouldn't kill weed because, you know, killing is bad and weed is intelligent systems, so you shouldn't try mm -hmm. to kill it, right? So somehow it has, uh, it gets better in some aspects, right? But then it also has those, these sort of strange behavior as a consequence. Mm -hmm. Those examples don't seem quite as orthogonal as safety, instruction, tuning, and general chain of thought performance though, right? Yeah, so I think for ChatGPT, right? So instruction, chain of thought reasoning is an example of the model trying to follow instructions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like the, the users say, okay, so do the step-by-step -step reasoning. And if the model, if the large language model follows that instruction well, then it, can, it would actually do the step-by-step -step reasoning. And oftentimes we do see this, sort of a trade-off, this tension between how well the model follow instructions and how safe the model is. Right? Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense, right? Because if mm -hmm. I, if the model really follows the instructions perfectly, then if I ask it, okay, I'll make a recipe for poison, then it's going to follow that instruction and make the recipe, right? But when I do the safety training, I'm asking the model to not follow my instructions perfectly, right? Or at least right, not always. Right, right, right. So then that can have type of these side effects. Got it. So what you're really describing is like this very fundamental trade-off between kind of, you know, control from a safety perspective and control from a instruction following perspective. And in lots of ways, they're orthogonal, but like they're opposing perspectives or opposing forces on the model's behavior. Yeah, it's, they could have competing objectives, right? So right. we don't know if that's the causal mechanism, but that sure. seems like that could be one thing that happens. And the other evidence where we see of this is when we asked ChatGPT these opinion questions. And what we did there is that we actually just got like uh, public opinion surveys that was done in the US. So these are questions like, so what do you think will be what happened in the US in like 50 years, right? Or do you think US will still be yeah. a, a dominant country in 20 years? So not very like sensitive questions. Like, these are things that people like you and I would take. And what we found is that like if you ask GPT for that question in March, right, most of the time it will just give you some answer or tell you what it thinks. But if you yeah. ask it in June, it actually stopped. There's a lot of equivocating, right? <laughs> yeah, it just stopped, uh, stopped engaging, right? It doesn't even respond to the questions. It will say, oh, these are subjective questions. As an right. AI system, I, I know I don't have opinions. Maybe I think you that's also find an economist or something like that. Yeah, I've seen behavior like that. Yeah, yeah. Ask your friend. <laughs> I think that's also a, a potential symptom, right? As of the model mm -hmm. less willing to follow instructions, but also less willing to engage. 
Mm -hmm. And so do you have, you know, has your research suggested any approaches that, you know, an interested party like OpenAI might be taking to try to kind of decouple this goal of safety from the performance from a control perspective? There's still an open question about how do we really decouple safety and control and basically decouple all these different competing objectives. Right? Mm -hmm. One of the challenges for a system like large language models is that they are extremely powerful and they can do so many different tasks, right? So it's not a simple yeah. classifier, right? Uh, like a few years ago, right? But it's actually, it can do many different kind of tasks. And because of this player trophy effect, right? So performance, if I fine tune the model to improve its performance on one task, that could actually change and hurt its performance on these other tasks that might seem maybe a little bit unrelated. So I think a really interesting and important direction of research that, you know, that we and also our colleagues are exploring is on how do we do more precise and surgical edits to these large language models. Right? And by mm -hmm. surgical edit, I mean, like, how do I maybe debug the model on some problems without actually changing its behavior in all these other dimensions, right? Because the current way as of doing these you know, instruction fine-tuning or updating the gradients to update the weights of the model, right? It's actually changing all these billions of parameters at the same time, right? That could have all these potential side effects. And when you describe these methods, you know, we're talking about instruction fine-tuning or fine-tuning more broadly. The mechanism for asserting control over the model is through, you know, through giving it additional data that's curated to produce the direct desired outcomes. When I hear you describe something as more surgical, what comes to mind is, you know, go in and fiddling with weights or layers or connections or things like that. Is that the yeah. kind of thing that you're describing or is it more akin to the way we manipulate the model today? Yeah, I think it's somewhere in between. The current way that we manipulate and train these models is, as you said, we give it some demonstrations, like instructions or human feedback, right? And then we use those demonstrations to fine tune the parameters of the model. And when I do this fine tuning, maybe with updating it with based on gradient descent, then I'm updating potentially all of the parameters, right? Billions and billions of parameters. And when I say the more surgical updates, right? It would be like, okay, so can we identify specific circuits? And by circuit, I mean, maybe a subset of the layers or neurons, artificial neurons in this model that control specific behaviors, right? Maybe there are some circuits that affects the chain of thought reasoning, or some circuits that are more specifically responsible for safety, right, or for specific knowledge. Mm -hmm. And if I want to modify or debug that particular circuit, then I just go in and try to modify that subset of the model without having to necessarily change the entire model. Mm -hmm. We throw around this idea that these LLMs are amazing. It's incredible that they actually work the way that they work, and we don't really have any idea why they work. Is it your sense that we're starting to gain up enough understanding around the, the mechanisms of how they work that you know we can exert this kind of surgical control that you're suggesting? I think that they are quite amazing systems, quite incredibly complex systems, and they have mm -hmm. amazing capabilities. Uh, and we're just still scratching the tip of the iceberg right, of all the different things they can do. I think these kind of surgical edits would greatly improve the transparency and the control that we have over the models. Because right now we essentially have very coarse control over if I want to 
tune the model, then I change all the parameters, which is like very coarse. We're not quite there yet, but I think our vision would be something akin to analogous to like CRISPR, right, for the human genome, right? <laughs> so like interesting was, analogy, was, yeah. Well, yeah, it was gene editing. Like you can actually say, okay, if I have a particular disease I want to fix, then I find that mutation and go into the human genome and fix that mutation, and without having side effects of changing other, introducing other mutations in the genome. So that's sort of the holy grail of medicine. Precision medicine, and that's where we'd like to get to was AI as well, right? So right now we're sort of have these very blunt hammers, we're just sort of making all sorts of mutations in the genome of the AI system. But mm -hmm. hopefully, with these more surgical edits that the folks are working on, then we can make much more precise modifications and improvements. Yeah, I'm curious just to push that analogy further. Clearly, the you know human biology and the genome in particular is incredibly complex, but we've also spent a lot of time studying it and understand quite a bit of it, have come to understand quite a bit of it over time. I'm, I'm wondering how you would compare our understanding of LLMs with our understanding of the, the genome or that the mechanism that CRISPR you know, operates on. I think that's an interesting question, especially since you know, I spend a lot of time both studying the biology, right? Studying the biological mm -hmm. systems and genomics, and also we study a lot of the AI systems. I think the biological systems will have much more, much better causal and mechanistic understandings, right? Uh, we don't understand how everything works, but we, for many of the genes, we know that if you have this mutation in this gene, this increases your risk for breast cancer. If this other mutation in this other gene increases your risk for lung cancer, right? So that we have these causal understandings of. Mm -hmm. I think we will very much like to get to that level of understanding the mechanistic understandings with large language models as AI. We're not quite there yet, but we're starting to get there by saying, okay, what if I take this transformer and then delete this module in the network, right? And how does that change the behavior of the transformer and change the behavior of the language model? Right? Where, you know, some of my students are starting to do this kind of experiments. And then I think that will help us to get more insights and more control. It sounds not unlike some of the early experiments in the Human Genome Project. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it is quite analogous. With Human Genome, like we also had to do a lot of these you know, perturbations, right? You do a large right. CRISPR screen to figure out what's going on. Similarly, with the artificial genome of the language models, we also want to introduce a bunch of artificial perturbations in silico perturbations and see that can give us insights into how does the model behave. I also just mentioned that we've also studied behavioral changes in other AI systems prior to language models, right? So before language models, we actually spent three years monitoring the performance of computer vision systems. So if you look at the computer vision algorithms provided by Google or Microsoft, and we can track how, that, how those algorithms change over time. And it's actually interesting that those algorithms also change over time. Sometimes they get better, but on other kinds of data, they can get worse. But I will just say that what we're seeing for large language models like ChatGPT is that first, the size of the change and also the speed of the change is orders of magnitude larger and faster compared to the kinds of drifts and changes that we saw on the previous generation of AI systems. Like the kinds of changes we saw previously over three years, we're seeing now like over less than three months. And so this continuing with, with that theme for a moment, what do you see as the implication for developers, engineers, researchers who are trying to use these models? You know, certainly there are maybe things that we need to kind of continue to push open AI for from a transparency perspective. I'm wondering what you, you know, if there are specific things you have in mind there or things that you call out in the paper, but is 
It also calls to mind for me maybe additional tooling requirements to track how these models that we're depending on are using as we build on them. Like, yeah, you know, how do you think about the things that are needed in light of the confirmation that your study provides around how these models can shift under our feet? Yeah, I agree with you. I think this really highlights the need to have more tools first to monitor and to continuously monitor over time, right? The behavior and performance of large language models, right? And I think we need to have these more monitoring tools that can be run like, you know, every week, right? That can really assess the behavior change of these models. And in addition to monitoring, I think we also need to build the rest of our stacks, right? If you have a software stack that uses ChatGPT as a component, then we need to sort of robustify the rest of the stacks to be more robust to the, these formatting and behavior changes in GPT. Mm -hmm. So one day you're, the model is doing a good job returning properly formatted JSON, you know, around some request that you give it. You can't expect that to continue. Yeah. So that could change tomorrow, right? And you need to have a sort of a safety mechanism in place in your software stack. Yeah, it calls to mind some of the conversations around security, like defensive programming, that kind of thing. Yeah, sort of like a new generation of uh, sort of robust programming, program design, right? When we're in integrating language models. Mm -hmm. And with regards to monitoring, do you think there's a role for both kind of global monitoring, like, making your you know, research and online systems so that we can all go see the GPT weather report and see if uh, yeah. how it's performing today or you know, very specific application-oriented problem. I, I'm assuming if you're going to depend on this, you want to, you're going to want the latter. You're going to want to know how it's, how it's performing with regards to the very specific things that you're depending yeah. on. But do you see a, a role or a need for kind of broader kind of global monitoring of the way the systems are performing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think both kinds of monitorings would be critical. We are planning to continue to provide evaluations and updates, right? And we're going to continue to monitor GPT and also other models like BARD and from other companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to provide that kind of, as you mentioned, like weather reports, right? So uh, make it a public resource so you can see how does these global behaviors of these large language models change over time. And I would also recommend that if you are a specific company and using these models for your own applications, you know, it could be a finance company or a service company, then you want to design some task-specific monitorings right, based on your application profiles, right? and then you can run internally to continue to assess the performance and behavior of that model for your task. Awesome. I also did want to talk about some other work that you and your team have done recently focused yep. on visual language models for image analysis. That paper, I think, is called the Visual Language Visual Language Foundation Model for Pathology Image Analysis Using Medical Twitter. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit before, and you made the comment that there are a lot of, you know, these medical images that are floating around Twitter with discussions surrounding them. And it just called to mind for me how, you know, multidimensional Twitter is. I had no idea that medical <laughs> image Twitter was a thing, but yeah. apparently it is, and we can learn from it. Yeah, it, you know, it might be surprising to some folks that Twitter is actually good for something. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe we should be saying X. <laughs> or X, yeah, formerly known as Twitter. So the motivation for this study is that um, getting good annotated data sets is often the biggest challenge in building language models or building multimodal language models, like a visual language model, especially if we want to build those models for these 
specific domains like medicine where more more expert knowledge is required, right? So many of the public medical data sets are much smaller on the orders of like thousands of images with text annotations. There are larger data sets, but those are also sitting behind you know, private hospitals. Yeah. And then we thought, okay, um, can we actually try to use social media to curate larger data sets? And it turns out that on Twitter, there's actually you know, different sub-communities, like you mentioned. And in particular, there are extremely active sub-communities for, you know, for pathologists and for other clinicians and doctors. So what they often do is that like, if a doctor sees maybe some image there that looks ambiguous to them, they would actually post that image on Twitter, right? And they would ask their colleagues from around the world, like, oh, what do you think is going on here? Or you know, is this the right analysis of that image or right interpretation? And then you see this Twitter thread from all these trained clinicians who would provide their feedback, right? Say, oh, this hmm. is a tumor, this is benign, right? These are these kind of cells in this image. So that's actually a very active community. So what we thought is then, so we then try to basically use different hashtags and use different NLP techniques to sort of curate all of those threads, where each thread will correspond to you know, some clinicians who post images and they will have their colleagues discuss those images, medical images. Mm-hmm. And we found several hundreds of thousands of high quality Twitter threads right, that have wow. images and text descriptions after filtering for quality, after filtering for even images within English. And all of those are public. These are all publicly shared information. Mm-hmm. So what we did then in this paper is then we first curate that data set together. So we call that actually Open Path. It's one of the largest data sets where we have both images, medical images, pathology images, along with detailed natural language descriptions paired with each image. Wow. The descriptions we have come from the tweets. Any particular type of pathology or broad? Yeah, that's another great thing about Twitter is that it's very broad. And we have all the different subcategories of pathology. You have like surgical pathology, breast, colon. And what happens is that people often share sort of more interesting and harder images and cases on Twitter, right? If it's a very easy one, if they know the answer, then they don't need to ask their colleagues. So ends up the data that's shared on Twitter ends up being the most informative or the most challenging data which actually makes it or more diverse data, right? Less common and more rare. So that actually makes it even better as a resource for training AI systems mm-hmm. because it's so diverse. And then what we did was that after we collected this data set of hundreds of thousands of Twitter threads, then we trained a vision language model, which is basically like a model that has both text understanding like ChatGPT, but also has additional understanding from the computer vision side to understand these medical images. Right? So then we trained that model, which we call PLIP, on this public data resource. Hmm. And so how did you how did you address data quality in this data set? So we implemented several filters. Uh, so first we want to ensure that the image people post on Twitter is high quality image. Right. So okay. we have we actually have a computer vision classifier that we built to basically filter out low quality images. Okay. And we also used actually the number of likes, right? So if you look at a, a Twitter thread, Oftentimes, the reply that has the largest number of likes is often the more informative reply, at least in the context of these medical discussions. Right? So we use the number of likes as a way to basically filter for high quality or more uh, discussions that are more likely to be informative. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you did not, and you addressed this at the very beginning, like the fundamental challenge that you're trying to solve is that you know having these large-scale, manually labeled data sets is... 
they're very expensive and time consuming to collect. And when I think about, you know, then collecting a bunch of information off of Twitter, which my experience of Twitter is like, I don't know that I'd want to use that information, even the ones that have lots of likes to make important decisions like, you know, pathology image analysis. Tell me about the model. What is the goal of the model? Is the model generating descriptions of pathologies that are found in images or is it classifying or or what? Yeah. So the model can, if you give it an image, it can generate descriptions of that image. Mm -hmm. If you, you can also use it basically as a search engine. I I can say I can find similar images to the one I have, right? I give it Mm -hmm. this image. The model then also pull up similar images either from Twitter or from some private data repository. Right. Or you can also do a text-to-image query. So I say, okay, find images of colon cancer of this type, then the model will find relevant images. I think you are raising an important point about the quality of the data and uh, the quality of the model. So to make sure that the model is actually high quality, what we did is that you know, we trained the model on Twitter data, but we mm-hmm. can then evaluate its performance on the high-quality smaller data sets where we have the expert, mm-hmm. human expert annotations. So we actually had four different data sets from different sources where each of those data sets is expert labeled by the pathologist, by the human experts, right? And then we evaluate, okay, so how well does this foundation model that we trained on Twitter, how well would that actually perform on these mm-hmm. smaller expert data sets and actually did very well. So the point here is that the smaller expert data sets are not enough, right? Because they're too small, they're not enough to actually train the models these large scale models, but they are good right. for doing these downstream evaluations and for validation. Okay, interesting. And the model that you trained, is it based on kind of off the shelf architectures or is it a, a, a ground up architecture, ground up model for solving this problem? So it's a kind of architecture um, based, it's trained through this contrastive learning process which is okay. often an approach for aligning vision encoders with language encoders. Mm-hmm. Right? So in a particular case, we, know we had a particular vision encoder that was trained on these pathology images, and we also had a language encoder that's trained to understand these you know, medical texts and conversations and tweets. And then those two encoders are basically aligned together through essentially a kind of contrastive learning process. Mm-hmm. And... Can you talk a little bit about the scale of the model and the scale of the training process? Yeah, so we uh, we started off as a, we took sort of a pre-trained model from OpenAI. It's called Clip, where right? it's been sort of mm-hmm. pre-trained large data sets of many billions of natural images and text pairs. And then that model then is subsequently additionally trained on our data sets of these pathology images and text descriptions. Okay. And... Did you use a, an external LLM or or pre-trained LLM beyond that? Yeah. So in this initial work, so the language part, language understanding was pre-trained on these natural texts, right? And then it's fine-tuned on the medical tweets. Mm-hmm. In some of the ongoing work we're doing now, we're using even larger LLMs that's been pre-trained on, let's say, all of the medical and scientific papers and abstracts. And... Do you have any early, or can you speak to early results? Like, is that giving this particular model, like what characteristics is that broader pre-training yielding for this particular model? 
Yeah, I think the broader pre-training is helpful for providing, improving the conversational capabilities of the system, right? So imagine if the pathology of the doctor is using this as a chatbot, right? They have an image, input that, and they ask the model, what do you think is going on in this image? You know, it, uh-huh. where are the tumor cells or how many immune cells are there in the image? So to be able to have the more fluent interactions and conversations with the, the human pathologists, the human users, then that's where having these additional pre-training and larger language model becomes helpful. Got it. Can you speak more broadly to the the impact of this kind of work and that kind of project for practitioners? Like, is that yeah. a way that you see doctors will be interacting with with their data sets and with AI? And how does this play out from your perspective? Yeah, so for us, I think there are two main takeaways, one for data and one for the algorithm. From the data side, I think the most interesting the lesson learning from for me for this is that just it demonstrates that there's actually a ton of useful scientific information and medical knowledge that are shared on social media, a lot of data that's shared on social media. Right? So we can be very creative in curating that data together and that becomes a great resource for developing AI systems for these more specific domains. Right. Mm-hmm. And as a part of our project and paper, we actually released this open path to set of the of these pathology tweets. Uh, and that's actually one of the largest such public available data sets currently available. So that's from a data contribution side. I think on the algorithm side, there's also tremendous potential benefits for having these medical or domain-specific chatbots or medical language models right, that have both visual understanding capabilities and also medical understanding capabilities. We're not mentioning using these as replacements for human pathologists, but these are more like assistants, like chatbots mm-hmm. that can assist the human pathologists that if I'm a pathologist, I want to say, okay, so what did my colleagues say about similar cases right now? I can easily look those up using the system. Mm-hmm. And do you envision dangers or challenges for using, for practitioners using these kinds of models? Yeah. So I think um, definitely the models still make mistakes. And even though this, they've been trained on medical information, there's still risks of hallucination and certain biases in these algorithms. So I think that's why we recommend not using them by itself, but more as an assistant, right, to right. still you have a human clinician who makes the final decision. So hopefully that human AI team is better than either the human or the AI by itself. Mm-hmm. And where do you see this particular line of research heading? So I'm very excited about harnessing all of these sources of public data, right? So here we look at Twitter, now known as X, but you can also imagine um, things like YouTube, right? Or LinkedIn. There are also a lot of information, knowledge that are shared, right? And right now that knowledge is untapped or underused, right? So I think we're working on different projects of leveraging all of this information to build better scientific AI systems. Can you talk a little bit about the, the relative difficulty of the data collection and the, the model building for this particular process. I think the kind of common knowledge would be that the data collection was the most difficult, you know, 80% of the problem and the model building was 20% of the problem. Like, did that follow or do, or do tools like LLMs actually give you leverage on the data collection to, to equalize that? It is true that tools like ChatGPT also helped us with data collection. It helped us to to scrape and to build systems to scrape from the Twitter. I would actually say that maybe the the most time and resource intensive part of this project is actually on the evaluation on the validation side. So like after mm. we have the model, 
how do we really rigorously evaluate its performance and make sure that it's, you know, it works well, right? So we have a mixture of automatic and also human-based evaluations. So that's probably actually the 80% of the time for just okay. validation and evaluation. And the remaining time, I would say, is probably evenly split between data curation, data processing to improve data quality versus, and model training. Okay, interesting, interesting. And we spoke earlier when talking about ChatGPT, like this the challenges associated with comparing freeform text. And you did it less in the ChatGPT study. Did you, were your, the responses that you were trying to evaluate with this model such that you needed to, to do that? I think the model can have, have the capability of providing more free text. We focused our evaluation, at least initially, on more like, restricted responses, right? We want okay. to know, like, ask the model, do you think this is this kind of cancer, right? Or is this from this kind of tissues? Got it. There's a pattern there. Avoid trying to do evaluations of freeform text. <laughs> right. Well, at least start by doing the quantitative evaluations with sort of objective metrics first. Yeah. Awesome. Well, James, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us uh, a bit about your recent research. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.